Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We're your hosts, David O. And Carly R. And today we are joined by our very special guest, in-house. We haven't had an in-house guest in... A really, really long time. A long time, yeah. Right, Pre-COVID. Right, right, yeah, right before the, the COVID. Uh, Zach, how are you doing today, man? I'm good. I guess it's a, a vaccine benefit, right? That we can all sit here together and... 100%. In, in person and... I was debating whether to do this from home, and I was like, yeah, there's a screaming baby at home that might interject with this. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Plus, it's good to see your guys' faces. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Always good, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have somebody in the studio again. So where, where are you from, Zach? Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I was born at St. Agnes Hospital in Baltimore, and um, my family hails from Elkridge, so I've typically always... Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, my, my grandfather had a dealership on Route 1 in Elkridge uh, when I was a little kid, and I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house on Laurier's Hill Road in Elkridge, and um, that's where I spent the majority of my childhood. Um, later on, my father moved to uh, Howard County, so I pretty much grew up in Howard County um, and went to a lot of different schools. My, uh, my dad was always moving. I was back and forth between my mom and my dad quite a bit. So, um, yeah, I, I was always jumping around, had to make new friends. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably a good thing because it taught me how to um, meet people and become social and make new friends wherever I went. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Nice. Yeah. When were you first introduced to recovery? Boy, I caught a, a, a charge when I was like 15. It was constructive possession. It's one of those where you get pulled over and they find weed in the car and nobody wants to take ownership of it. So they charge <laughs> everyone and you're 15 and you have zero clue about like, yeah, like rights, laws and rights. And so there's, oh, we're going to arrest everyone and charge all of you. Right. So uh, one of the things that came out of that was the judge sentenced me to go to meetings mm-hmm. and uh, I went to my first meeting at that time. So I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. And I went to the Ellicott City group on Wednesday night, 8 p.m. And uh, I sat in the back. I didn't say a word. I just listened. I thought everybody was crazy. And uh, they just didn't know how to use successfully. And um, Mm -hmm. after that, I realized... But you at 15 years old knew how. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. After that, I realized that all I had to do is get somebody to sign this piece of paper, right? There was no stamp. Mm-hmm. There was no, <laughs> no electronic records. No. So it was, um, it was one meeting and I was out. And I was just having friends sign my slip so I could turn them into the court. But uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that works. Yeah. And uh, how long have you been clean? Uh, I've been clean a little over four and a half years. Um, it's been quite a journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took me a really long time to get clean. Uh, you know, I'm 43 years old, so you know I, I didn't technically get clean till I was 39. Uh, although I had been in and out of NA and had um, small amounts of clean time over my life, you know, but it was always this 30, 60 day kind of in and out thing, and um, I could never really face the depth of my issues and as an old sponsor of mine would say um you have to get desperate right you have to reach Mm -hmm. that point of desperation and oh yeah i was always getting bailed out every time i would have a a situation that um had some consequences usually my father would come to the rescue Mm -hmm. right in the form of uh you know monetary lawyers and shit like that bail money, lawyers, really good lawyers to bail me out of situations. And then even when I would uh, get a charge and have to face probation, it was always like some kind of loophole or some way for me to get around it. For example, I got a DWI in uh, 2014 and this was not an alcohol DWI. (laughs) This was a heroin DWI. And of course, the first day after court, you have to go see your your probation officer and she um, gave me a urinalysis because she saw the charge sheet that listed what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But every successive visit, all she ever did was breathalyze me. You know? Oh. Yeah, so it's like, <laughs> I guess you don't remember why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> and um, once, you know, a couple of months went by and I realized this lady was only ever going to breathalyze me, you know, my disease kicked in. I was like, I can continue to use. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always found a way to manipulate the situation, a way back into using, um, no matter what the circumstances were, to be honest. And... Um, I really just didn't have any desire to get clean at that time, you know? Yeah. Uh, anytime that I would try, it was for family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just I just didn't know. Yeah. You know, I hadn't reached bottom. Yep. All right. Well, with all that out of the way, we're going to turn it over to you to uh, share some of your story with us. So take it away, buddy. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so um, I guess I'll, I'll kind of go back and just talk about how I my childhood and how I kind of arrived at this point. You know, my my parents divorced when I was three and they are polar opposites. Um, My father is a very driven, uh, successful businessman and so is his father and so are all of his siblings. And um, my mother was a beautiful young lady, but uh, all of her siblings and relatives have the disease of addiction in one form or another, whether it's alcoholism or, you know, addicted to drugs, but also a lot of mental health issues. And um, because they split up when I was so young, I was always kind of split between these two different lifestyles, you know, the successful driven family and the sort of, you know, uh, food stamp, uh, social program, manipulative family that, it kind of led me to this point where I was living two different lives. Mm-hmm. And then you know, my mother was in and out of the picture quite a bit. She would go from guy to guy. She didn't have a lot of stability in her life. So uh, in some ways, I felt kind of abandoned by my mom. Her priority was using and she was just very selfish type of person. Whereas my father did give me you know, some of that you know, structure. But <clears throat> when my mom finally did settle down again and got married, remarried, uh, split custody came back and so I would start spending more time with her and when you're a teen you want to rebel right you want to have fun and and you're trying to figure out who you are and my mom didn't care what I did I could literally do anything I could have friends over we could party at our house and uh, one of the first people I ever used with was my mother so you had the quote-unquote cool mom I had the cool mom in fact (laughs) at at the end of uh, high school at the end of the day everybody would come to my locker, you know, and they were like, let's go to your house. Yep. Right. Cause they knew like we could go there. We could, we could smoke weed. And my mom would go to the liquor store for us too. So it was party time. And um, she didn't care when I came home, there was literally no rules in, you know, so then I'd go back to my father's house and it was all rules. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, eventually the mask falls down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could wear the mask at my dad's house and pretend everything was perfect. And I was still smart enough to get good grades and like do a pretty decent job at school. And I played sports. Uh, but once in a while you'd catch a, a charge or yep. you'd get in trouble somehow, you know? And um, then my father's eyes started opening a little bit slowly over time. How did your mom react to the charges? Was she just like, ah, the fucking man got you? <laughs> no, she was always, you know, s- supportive and wanted to help me through situations, but she just didn't know how to be a good role model mm-hmm. or, or really like a parent that disciplines a child, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, children need, right? You need to give them some guidance. And, um, you know, f- for someone who is a burgeoning addict like me and became... Ooh, good word, burgeoning addict. <laughs> budding burgeoning no burgeoning um, yeah and for for an addict like me who is starting to become um addicted to things like fantasy and video games and stealing at a young age like the pattern was already present way before drugs um you know i needed guidance and uh you know unfortunately i didn't get that all the time um so yeah you know i, I kind of became two different people i would wear a mask in one situation and a mask in another situation and I became like a chameleon Mm -hmm. and I could blend into different situations and because of that I was friends with a lot of different groups of people you know I could be friends with the athletes and I could be friends with the 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 burnouts right the stoners and 
you know, smoking cigarettes in the bathroom at high school. And, uh, you know, I actually did get caught with weed on my birthday in high school. You know, I mean, it was always it was always a weed charge, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The young ones were. Yeah. Oh, dude. So many weed charges. Right. And I look at it nowadays and weed is like legal. Weed's legal. So I'm like, man, I got fucked. I know. You know, like our our kids are not going to have the struggle. Like there's a comedian who talked about that. They're going to be like, what do you mean? You didn't just go to like the 7-Eleven and just get your weed or whatever. It's like, no, we got in cars with strangers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember we would, uh, we would have, what did you call it? A clam bake, right? Yes. We would sit in somebody's big hoopty with the tinted windows and we would smoke a blunt until our heads (laughs) felt like they were going to explode. And, um, that was high school. And then the one asshole every time is like, dude, I got to open the window. And he fucking cracked that. He was like, you asshole. You let them, you're letting out all the stank. <laughs> right. Dickhead. Yeah. So, you know, and then the drugs started to um, step up, right? Like, mm-hmm. then I started to try cocaine and LSD. And um, I had really like no desire to go to college. My father basically forced me to go and forced me to apply a couple of places. And I got into Frostburg and, uh, oh yeah, that's gonna help. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wound up going to Frostburg, and uh, yeah, it was just no, alcohol. no offense, Frostburg, but you're a fucking party school. We all know it. <laughs> you went to a party school I too, did. Carly. I fucking did. Salisbury. You're that's doing... <laughs> why I just stayed quiet over here. I wasn't trying to be brought into it. But what's what's Frostburg's mascot? I don't even know. I, I can't even remember. <laughs> to be honest. I drank so much alcohol, I have zero clue. You were a. It's a bobcat. It's a bobcat? Oh, yes, yeah. it is. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But then Eric would know. I mean, there's literally nothing else to do there but, but no. drink alcohol. It's so damn cold. I mean, we had three feet of snow in October. You know, we built an igloo in front of our dorm. Yeah. And it was, you know, meeting these new people from, you know, different parts of the state. And uh, so, yeah. It was mostly alcohol. Lots of moonshine, lots of meth, you know, the (laughs) usual. The usual, right? (laughs) Western Maryland. Uh, And I maintained, I was able to get decent grades my first semester, but my second semester, it just started to tank because it was a keg party every night. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, I, I managed to get straight C's which was passing. Yeah. But my father's eyes, that was not good enough. And he's mm-hmm. like, you're not going back. He wasn't going to pay for it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so back to Baltimore, I come. Of course. With, uh, Out you know, of the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> right. <laughs> with that next level of, uh, of, of addiction. And, um, you know, it was back to community college to, to find something to do. And I really didn't know what the hell I wanted to do with my life anyway. So it became real easy for me to skip class and hang out with girls and smoke pot and continue to drink. And, you know, my progression was really slow at that point. I was still like a a weekend warrior type of person. Mm -hmm. You know, I might, I would smoke pot pot every day, of course, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) I wouldn't get into anything harder on the weekdays. You know, here's the question I have for you. Cause you're, you're in the perfect age group of, the the oxy generation yeah so is that where it like really began was with like the the ocs yeah absolutely in fact it was percocet first Mm -hmm. um i was 25 i was living in a girl with a girl in my first house and um i was you know madly in love with this person and she we always are she broke my heart right she broke my heart she slept with another guy and I was so devastated because I was so codependent. Mm-hmm. I was so like, it was probably has some things to do with being sort of abandoned by my mom. Mm-hmm. But I was so uh, obsessed with her that when she did that, the only thing I could do to stop from that racing my, my thoughts about that situation was to, was to take Percocets. Mm-hmm. And that just numbed me to everything. Yep. And um, it didn't take long for the tolerance to ramp up. To the point where within a couple of years, I was, you know, I was dropping 200 $250 a day. Mm. Anything that I had ever been given financially, which was a lot by my family, uh, was out the window. Yep. You know, investments and, and bonds and um, just uh, just didn't care, right? I just didn't care. Uh, the only thing that mattered to me was the pill, yep. you know? And I remember the first time I went through withdrawal, I didn't even know what withdrawal was. Right. I've yeah. just been taking pills every day for like a year and all of a sudden I couldn't get any. And I'm like laying on my floor, curled up in a ball and, and my stomach is in knots and I felt so much pain and it was horrible. And I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? You know, I was such an idiot. Mm. Um, 
and that was when I went to my first treatment center because my family could see what was going on and my dad wanted me to go to treatment. And so I did, I went to pathways in Annapolis and, um, I left that place with a rehab romance and a worse problem that I went in with, you know, one of the guys I went to rehab with, he moved into my house, like as soon as he got out of treatment, (laughs) you know, um, all I did was just socialize the whole time. I didn't take it seriously. Um, so, you know, I come back home with these new connections and a girlfriend who knew how to shoot heroin, you know, and I didn't. Um, so that was the first time I shot heroin was with her. She, she injected me and, uh, I w- you know, normally you would say like, as soon as you get that first shot, you would continue down that path. But I actually went back to the pills because I just didn't have the, the connections and, and it didn't work out with her. And, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, eventually I, I tried uh, methadone maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably like a year or two after that. And um, boy, that was a racket. You know, my whole life revolved around that. You know, I had to get there at 6 a.m. <laughs> you know, I could never... You know, you never got take homes, did you? Never got take homes. <laughs> <laughs> never got take. I could not, you know, come up with a clean urine, and uh, <laughs> so I had to go every single day. And I remember one time I met with the counselor to ask for take homes because I was invited to a wedding out of state, and uh, I needed to be there for like five days. And so they they allowed me to take the take homes, and um, mm-hmm. on the flight. Uh, they lost my luggage. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm stuck in Chicago with no methadone, you know, uh-huh. and it took them. The a- universe is just throwing you so many life preservers. <laughs> just like, hey, hey, buddy, the we're s- taking this away from you. You're like, nope. It, exactly. The signs were, were there. And, uh, you know, it was like it was like a handcuff. Right. I couldn't go anywhere because mm. of it. And um I would still be able to maintain. I was always like a high functioning type of addict. Mm-hmm. Like I would go to work, you mm-hmm. know, right after the methadone clinic, you know, and I'd be sweating, of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would get to the methadone clinic at like 6.15 in the morning in a shirt and tie. And and I remember the, the people in the line would be wearing like wife beaters and, and pajama pants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they would tell me they would be like, you know, you look like you should be behind the counter pouring this stuff, not in line with us. Mm-hmm. And all that did was inflate my ego and make me feel like I was a smarter addict than them. Mm. You know? Yep. Uh, and that just fed my belief that I could make everyone around me believe I was okay. Mm. But really the the demon was growing inside. Yep. You know? Um <clears throat> So eventually I did get off the methadone. Uh, it was it, it was extremely challenging and difficult. I was sick for a month. Um, and somehow I, I did manage to put together like 60 days at that time. But uh, I didn't change people, places and things. Yep. You know, I, I still had a couple guys living with me who were using and I just couldn't uh, hold hold strong for for long because, you know, I wasn't surrounding myself with people in recovery and um you know, four or five treatment centers later, you mm-hmm. know, it was the same thing. I would go to treatment like every two years when things got really bad. Mm-hmm. And it was like a vacation. I, I got used to it. I actually would like have a good time there. You know, I would get out. I, I might get 30 days. I'd get a, you know, a fresh new pair of shoes and make everybody think I was cured. And then sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, I would end up right back in the same place. Um, and, and I'm so stubborn that I just never listened to the things they were saying in NA about don't get into a relationship in your first year and don't substitute one drug for another. I'm just like the type of person that has to bang my head against the wall before I learn something. Yeah. So everything they said not to do, I had to try, right? Yeah. Substitute this, substitute that. And also had a whole half of my family that I could lean on um, to get drugs. In fact, my uncle was one of my dealers, you know, and mm. so... Even when I was sometimes willing to change my environment and maybe pick up going to some meetings, I was never willing to give up those connections. Mm-hmm. Right? I wanted to keep them in my back pocket. I wanted that um, that name brand Valium pill when I needed it and I couldn't sleep. Um, you know, and that's the way my life was. And, and I think for a long time, it's okay to to you know 
not know that you're sick, right? And and not realize that you have this disease. And maybe that's kind of an excuse. But after a while, I knew, right? I knew I was an addict. Mm-hmm. The, the writing was on the wall. I just wasn't willing to do anything about it. Yeah. And Eric has talked about that. There, like, There's like a point where you realize you're an addict and you just go ahead anyway. The moment of acceptance of your addiction. Yes. You just, yeah. Which is the antithesis of accepting your recovery. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of ties in with that, that you know, needing to reach a bottom too, though, right? Because I would never suffer bad enough consequences either. So that would enable me to continue, right? Oh, and yeah. my father was always my biggest enabler. He mm-hmm. would employ me so I could always make a decent living. Um, and while I was working for him, I could manipulate that job. I can come and go as I pleased and I would yeah. get a lot of benefits, you know, and, and he owns a car business. So I would get like a free car and free gas and, <sighs> and free insurance and all that kind mm. of stuff. So that just was more money for drugs. God, that's so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever accept your, uh, disease Carly? Were you just like, yeah, I'm a fucking addict. Yeah. Okay. What was it? What like what, what was the zenith? Like where was the point where you like? <laughs> yeah. Um, when I would leave work and to go like pick up to come back and use at work. Oh wow! With the kids because I was teaching. Oh. Or like it was probably right around yeah, the same time that... where I lost a bag of coke at work and I panicked and I went back in and it was like laying on the floor in the classroom. Oh my god! That was like that was. That was Holy shit. like, yeah, this is bad, but you know what? I mean, hmm. fuck it. I didn't get caught. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Did they drug test at your job? No, no, no. But I, I mean, there was a time too, when I worked at a clinic and I was stealing drug tests from the clinic to test myself to make sure I could pass drug tests. <laughs> <laughs> I was the one sitting behind the counter checking everybody in. That's um, amazing. I did not know that. I could not get urine from my friends because they were all addicts. Uh-huh. But my grandfather would actually give me urine. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, man, you had a whole you had a whole ring. Was man. that a grandfather on your mom's side or yeah, dad's side? My mom's father. Mm. You know, I mean, he actually had a gambling addiction. Um, never really touched alcohol or drugs, but he was a gambler, man. And in fact, it cost him his like his dream house. Yeah, he was like playing poker every Friday night in these underground places in Baltimore City. And uh, after he lost his house, my grandmother said, you can't play anymore. But I'll let you be a dealer. So he would go still for probably till the day he died. He would go and he would deal cards. And that was his thing. You know, so, um, yeah, it's it's always been there. It's always been present. And, I, and at that point, you know, I knew that I wasn't um, willing to change. And I was just like, I'm just going to die this way, mm. you know. I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to die this way. And, um, you know, over the years, it, it went from being fun to turning into a job and, and how much work it took to maintain that. Because not only was I, uh, you know, working an actual job, but I was also hustling on the side. I was oh, also yeah. selling all my scripts, you know, and all of that fed the beast. And um, and then somewhere over the years, it just turned into a nightmare. Um Really, probably the worst it got was when I came back from moving to the Midwest. I, I moved to the Midwest at the behest of a friend who was willing to save me, you know, mm-hmm. and give me some kind of different environment. And uh, I took I took me with me out there. Yeah, of course. You know, it, it took a while to use because I didn't know anyone and I didn't feel comfortable like going into, you know, the west side of Chicago and copping off the street because, you know, I just wasn't there yet. But mm-hmm. eventually I did find the ways and means. And um you know, that situation was getting bad. I wasn't paying rent. My friends weren't happy with me being there. So, you know, of course I came back home again. Yeah. And um, that's what we do, right? Like geographical changes. We we try to substitute one for another. We try to use people to support our, you know, our disease. We oh, try yeah. maintenance programs, you know, anything we can to keep going. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're just a full on parasite for a long time. Yeah. In fact, maintenance drugs became one of the biggest enablers to my disease because eventually I got Suboxone in my you know portfolio, mm-hmm. and the Suboxone doctor would write me this enormous script, and I knew that I could sell most of it, and I could keep just enough to keep me from ever going into like super difficult yeah. withdrawal. 
you know, and I could take Suboxone in the morning, go to work, and then I could get high at five o'clock because the half-life had like worn off, you know? And so mm. that's how it would go. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, after I came back from Indiana, like that's when things really ramped up because that's when I really got into um, shooting heroin, shooting coke, smoking mm. crack. Um, and when you start doing those things on a daily basis, it takes you into West Baltimore every day. It, it, it exposes you to a more dangerous lifestyle. Um, you know, I was nodding out and waking up places. I didn't know where I was. I would, you know, fall out in my bathtub and bang my head and get up and I would have, you know, blood gushing out. And, you know, it just, it got to the point where nothing could stop the, the, the monster. And, and I was actively trying to commit suicide at that time. I, mm-hmm. I just didn't want to live anymore. Um, and, and fortunately I had been in and out of NA enough to know a few people, mm-hmm. you know, I had some recovering friends. I had some people in my corner that had gotten to know me over the years. And, um, you know, right before I got clean, in fact, like two weeks before I got clean, some, some guys in my, um, in my network that Who? loved me and cared about me. Um, Who? Name drop them. Yeah. Yeah. Martin, Petros, oh, uh, yeah. Jared and Christina. Mm-hmm. Um, they showed up at my house on a random Saturday night, you know, when I was living in Oella, uh, right down the street, actually. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Sorry if I'm blowing up your uh, your spot here, Eric. But no, oh, no, our listeners know where we're at. Oh, okay. Uh, we're we're on the edge of the war zone. Yeah, we are on the edge of the war zone. Yeah. yeah. So they showed up at my door on a Saturday night, and they just like pounded on the door and pound. I didn't want to answer it, and then I let them in, and I was in full blunt withdrawal. I was like sweating and shaking, and uh, they just were looking at me and they were telling me they love me, you know, right. and they were just telling me like, we want you back. You know, like we miss you. And uh, they like wrapped their arms around me and said a prayer. And, and they were there for like 45 minutes. And, um, you know, it was emotional. It, it was it was devastating to see the looks on their faces mm-hmm. um, because I, I did care about these people. And, um, you know, it was a short time after that that I got clean, mm-hmm. like about two weeks later. Um, and I, I just was like, I, I better get busy living, you know. Yeah. And that, that last time where I, I tried to pretty much kill myself. I just couldn't fit enough dope in the hype. Mm. Yeah. There wasn't enough. And and that last time I, I went to get from a guy that was giving me really good stuff. And it that day he didn't have his normal supply. And I wound up getting this like dumbed down, you know, bullshit cut stuff. And, and, mm-hmm. and maybe that was God working in my corner because yeah. I survived. And mm. um, from that moment on, I just knew I had to do something different. And I knew that I had to change people, places, and things. Mm-hmm. I left my job working for my family. I knew I couldn't do it anymore. Yep. I moved into a recovery house immediately. Um, I had moved into a recovery house before, but kept my other place, you know? Oh, yeah. You got to keep the trap house. <laughs> yeah, you got to have the yeah. got to have the fallback plan. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, that all tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I moved into a recovery house. I changed. I dropped my entire mother's side of my family, including my mother. You know, mm-hmm. I just couldn't deal with her um, mental health and the and the swings that she would take and oh yeah it's toxic and my uncles you know being drug dealers i just couldn't be around them anymore and i just took a basic job living at a recovery house where i knew that if i used drugs i was i was going to get kicked out mm. and, and i i put myself in a situation where it was stay clean or, or nothing and mm-hmm. we have a saying around here you change one thing and that's everything and that's what i knew i needed to do mm-hmm. um and from there, man, it's it's been an amazing ride. You know, the, <clears throat> those first few months were challenging. I was in a lot of withdrawal. Um, I had been off and on Suboxone maintenance for nine years. And uh, I would go to meetings and the sweat was just pouring out of me mm-hmm. for like a year, to be honest. Yeah. I would wear a T-shirt and I would just have like a puddle down the side of my shirt. And I talked to some people in in, uh, in the rooms and they said, go get a bunch of black T-shirts. <laughs> And I did. I wore a. I went and got a Hanes like twelve pack of black T shirts, and I wore them every single day just mm-hmm. to cover up the sweat. Is that know? why we're wearing black today? <laughs> no, I just now I like <laughs> black. It makes me look thin. <laughs> <laughs> hides my. It hides my dad bod. Uh, but yeah, man. Like I just had to push through, just persevere and keep going. And each day I would get a little bit better and a little bit better. And those early days were the best, man. Like I would come home and I would just sit on the porch and talk to guys about recovery. Yeah. You know, and like, I have such fond memories of that time because now my life is so different that 
<clears throat> I sometimes miss those early days of recovery. I'm, I'm sure you guys do oh, as yeah. well. Oh yeah, it's fucking awesome. Now we heard the 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 acceptance of of addiction moment. What was like the acceptance of recovery moment? Well, where was that like turning the corner of like okay, like this is this is something I can fucking get into. Yeah. Um, I always knew that I needed to work the steps mm -hmm. um, and I just never really um, aggressively tried. Um, mm -hmm. So I would say for me, it was when I changed sponsors, mm -hmm. you know, like I was staying clean. I, you know, Who'd you have, Herb at the time? I had Herb mm -hmm. and Herb was willing to work steps with me even when I was on maintenance. Yeah. Um, but we, we just never like. I just didn't get far enough along and, yeah. and that, that could be my fault. That could be his fault. That could be no one's fault. I just, I just wanted to change everything. Like yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. so, you know, I changed sponsors too. And I got with somebody that um, has been instrumental in my recovery and, uh, and gave me some, some, some things to do. Like he said, call me three times a week. That's all I want you to do right now. And we would meet together and Who'd he you go with Martin. Uh, no, with Dan B. Oh. oh, solid. He's been my sponsor ever since, you know, and, Part of the reason I went with him was because I knew he worked steps a little bit differently and a little mm -hmm. bit faster. Yep. And maybe that's not for everybody, but for me, I didn't want to be this person that took 10 years to work the steps, right? I needed yep. to change. Yeah. You know, and I needed to do the work. And and that's what we did. We got on it fast. Yeah. And my first year I did five steps and, um, you know, I went to a ton of meetings and, and I started to like get healthy in terms of my physical self. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, would, I was going to the gym, I was eating better. And, and, and slowly my my body and my mind started to catch up, you know, um, and to the point where, you know, eventually I, I did take on a different type of job. I, I was working at a restaurant and that is not the best environment for people like us, to be honest. No, you know? no, it is not. I'd have cash at the end of the night. There was a bar there, a bunch of girls, you know, it was like I was in the danger zone. Even though I was staying clean, I, I sort of recognized that this couldn't last forever. Um, so I took a, a different job and then slowly my, my dreams started to awaken, mm -hmm. right? Like I never knew what I wanted to do with my life. I, I just hadn't have a clue. I had gone to school, but dropped out. I still had all these credits mm -hmm. and, um, I would always ask people like, do you lose your credits? And some, you know, some addict friend of mine would be like, oh, they're gone. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> they're gone. You can't get those back. You know, and I was like, you know, it's time to stop trusting these knuckleheads and actually talk that to the That wouldn't surprise me, though. Like the American way of education, that would make sense. Like so. after five years, your credit yeah, is just fucked. like, you yeah, nothing. you got to start over. Yeah, fuck you, pay me. It does make sense, right? Yeah. American-wise, yeah, it really does. It, yeah, it's, it's it, capitalism. If I had heard that, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> That's what I did. I was like, so I'd never pursued it again. So I got some lingering HCC credits from 16 years ago. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, right. In keyboarding, right? Or some, <laughs> or some class that doesn't even apply anymore. It was music history. Thank you. <laughs> I guess there's always a need for music historians. I learned copious amounts of, about Beethoven and Bach. It was great. Yes. I'm sure that applies in your life today. No. <laughs> but, you know, I, I realized that if I wanted to get professional help, I needed to talk to the professionals, right? Yeah. Like I was seeing a therapist for my mental health issues. Why not go see a college counselor to find out if I could go back to school? Yeah. You know, and so I did. And he was like, no, all of these credits still apply. You know, and I was like, oh, well, then I only need like five more classes to get my associate's degree. It's like, why not do that? Yeah. You know? And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was like, oh, let's just start with this. Yeah. You know, and um, and I did. And uh, I finished, you know, my associate's degree. And I realized at that time that I was a really good student. Yeah. You know, I was able to. Yeah, you're using words like burgeoning and behest in your fucking chair. <laughs> you're fucking killing it. Hey, you know, um, I try. I mean school has been like your dealers must have been like dude this guy's way too smart to be shooting dope oh man they would see me walking down pacing and they'd be like pull up your shirt i don't believe you're an addict are you a cop you know <laughs> it was so hard to cop dope i had to take my uh my uncle with me a lot of times because he's like like a half broken like old asian guy and he, he would just like have a golf club and his missing teeth and he would wear like a dirty flannel and you know, then I could fit in. Oh, you know? that's beautiful. Or I would get yeah. my drugs from like the, uh, the the guys that weren't like the hardcore dealers in the oh, city. Yeah. You know, the, yeah, the, the Western the Howard County guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, I, I might go to some guys in Irvington, right? But I wouldn't go always down to, uh, you know, d- down to Pratt and Monroe. But mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that's funny. But yeah, man, back to school. And, and I learned I was a great student. And, you know, the funny thing is about the disease of addiction is you can obsess on things and it can be a, a bad thing or a good thing, you know? So I was able to channel my obsession towards school and get straight A's and, um, then I was like, you know what, this school thing's not so bad. And maybe I should go for my bachelor's degree because now I got 60 credits. Now I only need 60 more, you know, and uh, and that's what I did. Ultimately, um, decided to go to a four-year school and I transferred and I got a scholarship and I got a grant and all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have yet to get a B. And, and it's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying that to like brag or anything. It's just like amazing to me. Yeah. Like, like I oh, just barely yeah. got by earlier when I was yeah. younger. Now I can like, focus on something and um and use my intelligence towards a greater good and and i learn a lot from school even if i don't use the things that i learn there in my everyday life i learn how to be a good student yeah right and um and how to like commit to deadlines and and some structure and um be a professional in some ways and um that's been invaluable yeah it really has um and i also met uh my significant other while I was in school, you know, and, and she didn't know where you met her. Now I know. Yeah. Awesome. I met her at HCC. And, um, you know, I, I always kind of thought like, I'm going to have to be in a relationship with an addict, you know, because nobody else is going to understand me. Yeah. But it turns out like I met her and she's not, you know, in recovery and, and, and she drinks sometimes and mm-hmm. she might smoke pot like once a year or something, you know, like yeah. she doesn't have the disease that we have. And, um, but, she and I could talk openly and she could understand what it was like to um, turn your life around. Right. And mm-hmm. to um, identify trauma and things in your life that were causing you issues. And in fact, it was able, she was able to look at herself through the things I was doing in my life and mm-hmm. realize that she had a lot of things in her life that were traumatic and she didn't like, and she wanted to change. Mm-hmm. And she'll openly share this with you. Like she feels like I was like a, a point of change in her life where she was able to like turn the corner around some of her own problems. That's awesome. So we started out as friends and we were friends for like six months and eventually we started, started dating and, um, you know, you know, three years later, like, you know, we just had our, uh, I just had my first girl, my baby girl, she's two months old and, uh, like it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, you know, Jess has two older girls and, um, I didn't know how that was going to go either. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'd never been a stepfather or any kind of role model. Um, but I wound up spending a lot of time with these kids and just really loving them. And they, and they really enjoyed being around me. Yeah. You know, and, um, it, it, one of the things I love most about being clean is just like living life and enjoying it. Yeah. You know, for so long, I feel like I was stuck in the basement, you know, just with the curtains drawn and, well, and now we're still stuck in basement. So it's church, <laughs> it's church basement. <laughs> that is a very good analogy, David. <laughs> Yeah, we it are. didn't really change. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I just felt like I wanted to get out and do stuff. Absolutely. You know, I, I wanted to enjoy nature, and I wanted to, you know, get on a mountaintop, but I wanted to go swimming and like, whenever I have time and and I I feel well enough, I'm gonna be outdoors. I'm gonna be enjoying life. And oh, um, yeah, dude, I didn't get clean to be fucking bored. Yep. You know, I didn't. Yep. And. um and so that's what they see in me. They see this person that has this like zest for life. And I think some, in some ways that can only come from what we've been through, mm-hmm. you know, like facing the darkness and almost not making it gives you this unbelievable sense of gratitude about being alive. Yeah. And, um, you know, so in that four and a half years I've been clean, I've, I've tried to do too much to be honest, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> that's, I feel like I have to make up for lost time. Yeah. You know, you got to make the rest of your life, the best of your life. Yeah. But there's also a fine line in that and walking you the balance. You can write balance. that down, Eric. That was, that was solid. <laughs> you got to find balance, mm-hmm. though, too, right? Because you can overdo anything. You can overdo school. I can overdo mountain biking. I can overdo going to the gym. Yeah. Um, you can snap your legs snowboarding like Brad's dumbass. <laughs> right. There, there's an obsessive friend of ours. No, it was softball. Yeah. Softball wasn't snowboarding. Love you, Brad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. It's It's... It's been a great four and a half years, you know. I never thought I'd be a father, mm-hmm. um, but it is absolutely the most amazing thing I've ever experienced. When I look at her, uh, I just never knew I could love something so much, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it was never something I saw in the cards, but 
I was looking at my life at 42 and saying, if, if not now, then when, Yeah, you know, it's, yep. the plan was to finish school and, and, you know, buy a house and all that stuff first, but I, you know, got a different plan. Yep. And I, and I knew because through the years that I've been clean, whenever I think that it's my plan, God has a different path for me and I have to just be willing to accept that. And yep. I saw this as that. And adapt to it. Yep. That this was a blessing and it was not at my place to spit in the face of that. Nice. You know, so, um, yeah, I've done well in school. I, I got a promotion at my job. Now I'm managing like 11 people and I've never, you know, been so successful in my life uh, professionally. Um, you know, I have a great relationship. I'm like a role model for these kids. And um, it's just amazing. It's it's really wondrous yep. to see what people can become and turn their life around. And it's never too late. Yep. You know, I do H&I every month. And one of the things I always tell those people is that I don't care how old you are. It's never too late to turn it around and to pursue your dreams and have a life that you want. You know, uh, we had a lady share my home group like two years ago and I'll never forget her cause she was 65 years old and she had just finished her master's degree and she had like four years clean, you know, and it was just so inspiring to see that, you know, no matter when you think it's the darkest, it, it could be some light on the other side of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right. Yeah. Well, we definitely have some questions for you. Okay. Um, before that, like I've known you probably seven, eight years, something like that. And to, to, to watch your, your life and recovery the last four years is, it has been just so fucking awesome, man. Like I'm, I'm so incredibly proud of you. Cause like so many people in this area, like you had so many connections, everybody knew you. And you just had so many people pulling for you for so long and you just stuck around just long enough to fucking get it and you got it and 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 you're killing the fucking game you're mountain biking and doing tough mutters and spartan runs all sorts of shit um so i'm proud of you man thank you um all right where da 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 um hmm what question am i gonna start with so I'll go. I'll pay you back right off that. So how how important was that support of everybody around here um, through through all that time? Because like I said, like I knew you for seven eight years, and you you'd still come and hang out. Like you were still around. So how how important was that support from everybody, regardless of your quote unquote clean status? It was paramount. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely paramount. Like, uh, I'll, I'll drop a few names. You know, Herb would call me when I was in the midst of using, mm-hmm. you know, and just check on me. You mm-hmm. know, not a lot of people did that. Um, Brad would let me come over his house and watch football games when I was on maintenance. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Martin was just like always trying to inspire me and, and he would meet up with me and have coffee. And, um, you know, there was people like that. Juan was a guy that I would always call when I was in treatment and I needed like some support and he would be like my quasi sponsor while I was in treatment mm-hmm. until I could find one. Um, Jason J was always in my corner. You mm-hmm. know, I, I had actually made a home group when I was here in 2009 and in my heart, that was always my home group. Even when I was out there using and uh, I could walk back into those doors, even when I was high and they would wrap their arms around me and tell me they love me. And, and they would even give me service commitments sometimes when I was on maintenance and they didn't judge me. Um, and even some of the home group members didn't agree with that, mm-hmm. but they got outvoted, Yeah, you know, and, and they were like, he's, he, he needs some responsibility. He needs some accountability. Like let's give him a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't speak highly enough of, of the type of people that are willing to let using addicts into their life. Yeah. Even, you know, cause it could jeopardize their recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but they understand like these people need some love and some support. And, um, that's the way I felt around people in recovery. I mm-hmm. felt love and support. It wasn't a transactional relationship. It wasn't, mm-hmm. what can you do for me? What can I do for you? It was just like, I'm here for you. Yep. You need help with something. Great. And I, I wasn't used to that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely pivotal. Yeah. Awesome. What do you got, Carly? Um, let's see. 
Um, so what is your relationship like now with your parents? Like when you came into recovery, you said you kind of just didn't have a relationship with your mom or that side of the family, but how has that changed at all in the past four and a half years? Uh, absolutely. On my father's side, it is a thousand times better than it ever was. Uh, especially since the birth of my daughter. Uh, but, but I did make amends with them a couple of years ago and that was really the beginning of it getting better. And before that, you know, you know, I was clean a couple of years before I made that amends. It wasn't great. You know, I mean, no. I had caused so much pain and burned so many bridges. And so, um, I made amends with them. I asked them, what can I do for them? And I came to the table prepared to pay them back financially mm-hmm. for all the things that they had given me. They of course didn't accept the money, but they were sort of like, we don't need anything from you. We just want you to stay clean. But I wasn't willing to let myself off the hook that easy. Yeah. You know? And so I wound up um, helping them move, right? Like they were going through a move at that time. So I would go there every weekend, help them pack boxes and help them move and just do something. Yeah. Right. Because I needed to feel like I was, you know, contributing to our relationship. And so um, that really helped move the needle. But, you know, and Jess, you know, my partner, she has really helped that too. Um, She's gotten to know my family and they've accepted her and her, you know, her older daughters and they love them. And and now with Violet, um, that's really taken it to another level. And so we're really close, closer than we've ever been. So that's great. My mom is still a very challenging area of my life. I very rarely share about it. My mom is still very unwell. She's in and out of uh, psychiatric facilities and shelters all the time. And um, Mm. she does strange things. Like she could just show up at your job unannounced or whatever and cause a scene. And though she's not using drugs anymore, her mental health is so bad that it's just too much for me to handle. So I've pretty much avoided it the most, most of the time since I've been, been clean. But more recently, I, I feel like I'm ready to try to have a relationship with her. I will take her phone call here and there. And if she starts going off the rails, then I cut it off. But, <clears throat> you know, for the first four and a half years, it's just been too much for me. There's too much um, trauma there and deep-seated issues uh, that that's that's next level recovery. And I'm not there yet, but I yeah. hope that I will be. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would love to have a good relationship with her and let her spend time with my daughter because she mm-hmm. wants to. Um <clears throat> But some wounds are deep. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to the lack of consequences because that's something that definitely uh, it, it really just it, it's just like pouring gas on the fucking fire. Like I, I think the lack of consequences for me and like you spoke about it, like with the ego and everything. So how how did the lack of consequences really uh, prevent you from getting clean and really just kind of fuel your addiction? They, I think that sometimes jail can be a good thing for someone, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I know people Got that, clean. yeah, a lot of people. And I see people that are in and out now. And if they go to jail, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm like, thank God. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, that was where I was at. Like, I would just keep getting bailed out of situations. So I never had to face the music, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, sometimes you need that, like, really harsh thing to happen to you. And, uh, and survive it to have the chance and um not having that is is difficult i mean in our program it says we until in desperation we sought help from each other and so i had to get to that point you know and it's different for everybody you know some people's idea of desperation is different from others Mm -hmm. um but i just think for me i was so stubborn of a person that i needed something difficult to happen um, it ultimately didn't, uh, in terms of financial or criminal or anything like that, it, it, it came to a point with me where the desperation was spiritual. Mm-hmm. And that is when I decided to get clean because I just had this empty hole in my spirit, Yeah, you know, and I was lacking a true purpose and connection in life. And I knew that until I got clean, that I couldn't reestablish that. Eric, that's the uh, title of this uh, episode. The desperation was spiritual. That's friggin' awesome. Um, hmm. All right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with this one. Yeah. What's your favorite step? You can only pick one. Oh man, this is a tough one. 
Um, you know, honestly, I would say seven is probably my favorite. Mm -hmm. And it really has to do with the experience I had with my sponsor on step seven. Um, you know, four and six are tough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they made me look at me and I didn't like what I saw in a lot of areas. Oh, yeah. Seven for me was a beginning of uh, of step eleven. So seven eleven are really kind of close for me. But seven, my sponsor took me out into the woods. I and... totally skipped you, Carly. I'm sorry. Yeah, you did. Oh, I feel like such a dick. It's just... like I wasn't even here, oh my God. and I just let it happen. I'm sorry, so it's I was fine. in the zone. Nope. So your sponsor took you out into the woods. Yes, we went out into the woods, and uh, he, for step seven, we simply sat and meditated and prayed. And he helped me kind of form a mantra in my brain about, you know, um, asking for my shortcomings to be removed. And I will never forget that moment because it was like the introduction to meditation for me, you know. And so it, it's been so impactful. And I know that no matter what's going on in my life and no matter how crazy it is, I can go to that place. Right. I can go to a quiet place in nature or even somewhere in my house and I can tone down the brain and get back to a uh, you know a more healthy spirit and that's vital for me because i have a busy life and um i need that sometimes just downtime to relax and let go mm -hmm. and, and pray and meditate so yeah step seven nice carly are you sure you don't have another question yes okay i'm sorry um you're forgiven it's thank okay you. thank you it's okay um so when you you talked about in your childhood how you moved around and back and forth between mom and dads, but it helped you like socially and make new friends. Do you think that moving back and forth had any negative effect or like kind of attributed to your using later on? Yeah, that's that's probably a good point, Carly. Um, it, it, it probably did. I mean, it made me adaptive in some ways, uh, which I think can be a good thing, mm -hmm. but it also didn't give me a lot of foundation. Um, you know, so it was more of the bouncing back and forth between my mother and my father, I think, you know, that was the most um, direct, you know, problem, I'd say, that, that really contributed to me becoming an addict because there was just no accountability on one side and there was on the other. And it was, it just led me to be two different people, you know, and I could never mm -hmm. become one person. Um, so... Yeah, you really got me. You got my wheels spinning on this question, Carly. Uh, but moving around was also a pathway to escape, right? Like I could, and that's probably a bad thing, right? Like I could escape to the Midwest and not face my problems here. Mm -hmm. And I'd be, I, I knew that I could make friends and meet people because I had experienced that when I was younger. So I could translate that in such a way that it, it helped me manipulate and it helped me become a smarter addict. Mm. Wow. Do you have another one? Yeah. So how has your addiction manifested itself today? Ooh. Ooh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Well, I should, it's not really a tough one. I mean, it, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Um, I can really easily become obsessive about certain things, uh, whether it is mountain biking or going to the gym or like eating, you know, mm -hmm. like I could go out to eat. And I'll get an appetizer and a steak, and then I still have to have dessert, right? Like, when is enough enough? You know, <laughs> like, and my a good example, like we went to uh, Fogo to Chow mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago, and I'd been on a diet until this point, and my addict brain <laughs> took over. Point. <laughs> yeah. Until this point, my addict brain took over, and I was like, I'll take more steak and more steak, and I just I left there with a, a stomach ache. I felt like I was gonna die. Like I thought I had food poisoning. <laughs> You know, like I, I can go overboard really quickly. Yeah. Um, but I try to channel it towards good things. And what I always have to ask myself is, is what I'm doing, am I powerless over this behavior? And is it making my life unmanageable, right? Like, am I going to the gym so much that my shoulders are killing me and my knees hurt all the time, mm -hmm. right? Am I eating so much that I've got this huge belly and like I'm just out of shape, you know, so... That's the kind of question I ask myself and I and I can catch it, right? Mm -hmm. Recovery's given me this awareness level that I can see these patterns happening and sort of rein myself back in. That can be challenging for me with school, 
because I get so locked in on it and I will proofread a paper like five times and I'll wind up with like a 99% on it when I could have like stopped five hours ago and still gotten a 92, you know, like, um, it's crazy. I I play a video game on my phone, right? Mm -hmm. And I can sit there and ignore everything that's going on around me and be obsessed up with this stupid game. And and she'll be talking to me and I I don't hear anything she's saying. Did you listen to me? No, damn it. I was playing this video (laughs) game, you know, and, and I'll get defensive and be like, you know, I'm playing my game, right? You know? So said that. We just had a fantasy football draft before this. I've been listening to fantasy football podcasts for like five weeks. You know, I listen to like five a day. Yeah. Right? It, like you're going to win a million dollars. Yeah, I know. And it's a $50 <laughs> league. A $50 <laughs> league. Right? I'm not going to win the lottery. But that just that just speaks to my disease. You're just going to earn your next trip to Fogo. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but I got to be careful, right? Like, that's why I've really stayed away from like, you know, some of my friends will go to casinos sometimes. And for me, that's like danger zone, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and I've struggled with nicotine since I've been clean. I've been off and on and um, yeah, it can manifest itself in pretty much any yeah. area of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So I got two more. All right. One, one is when I like, I thought of like midway through what you were talking to, you like said something around a bell. So we both had Herb as a sponsor and I think Herb has, has, always he he comes out of nowhere with these just amazing like quips or tidbits of shit that i call herbisms yes so do you have any specific herbisms that have have stuck in your brain through recovery it's so funny i feel like i have one of these for every sponsor i've had oh yeah Uh, my herbism is balance is a mythical fucking unicorn in wonderland That's a good one. Yeah. That's a fucking solid one. My the, the one that like that is always the best for me is don't don't believe everything you think. Yeah. I've always loved that when he said that. I was like, oh, that's so fucking true. One other thing that Herb told me that stuck out to me was when I was still uh trying to get clean and he was working steps with me and I was on maintenance, he would say, just try for one year. And if you don't have a, a better life, you have my permission to go back out and use. I promise you, your misery will be refunded, mm. you know, and uh, <laughs> that just always sticks with me, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's what I pass on to people in H&I. In fact, most of the isms that I've heard, I pass on to others. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? There's a reason they're cliches, right? Oh, yeah. Like, there's a reason you hear these things said over and over because most of them are true. Yeah. Uh, another sponsor I had, uh, Jason J, he put into my brain anything you put in front of your recoveries going in the cooker, you know, oh, God. in his, yeah. in his, uh, in his way that he says things. And, uh, that one always stuck with me because I tried putting other things in front of my recovery and they did wind up in the cooker. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. And my final question is besides for becoming a dad, what's your biggest accomplishment in recovery? Working the 12 steps. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. It has, um, changed my life and, and given me uh, sort of a benchmark, right? A way that I can solve problems, whether it's drugs or not. You know, if I'm going through some kind of relationship problem, I can turn to the steps as a way to help me move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just the first time I'd ever finished something. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it was the first time. And my sponsor, um, told me when I finished that I was the first sponsee he's ever had that finished all 12. Nice. So I felt like I was like a special person, you know, and, uh, now we just have to kick Brad's ass. Yeah, I know. Right. But you know, it's, I'm part of a 12 step program, mm-hmm. right. And, and there was always one thing missing when I was going in and out is I never worked the steps mm-hmm. and I would hear people say, work the steps or die, motherfucker, you know, all this oh, kind yeah. of stuff. And, um, it, it ultimately was Eric loves that. <laughs> There's, I'm sure, another dozen uh, isms around that same concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this also this kind of concept of you're, you're growing or you're going, right? You have to constantly be improving yourself and um, becoming a better person. And it gave me a pathway to do to do just that. Mm-hmm. So um, if, if people are out there or they're listening to this and they want to try other ways and means, this is the only thing that ever worked for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there aren't other ways. Um, I'm actually taking a class in college right now called alcohol and U S society. 
And Ooh. it's really interesting. In fact, I needed like a high level um, uh, elective. And I was like, well, let me take something interesting. Yeah. You know, I can do good in this because I'm an addict. I have personal experience here. <laughs> exactly. And uh, your essays could get very dark. A lot of these, a lot of these academics are like fighting the concept of the disease of addiction, you know, and they're saying it's not a disease, you know, I mean, even though it's been like medically accepted, there are still people that don't believe that. And, um, you know, for me, having lived it, I can tell you it's a disease because it's in the way I think and yeah. it's in the way it's, I it's a, men, it's a mental thing. disorder it is in the the DSM like it, it is recognized as a, a mental mental disease and it is 100% can you imagine being someone in the 30s or 40s and you were completely stigmatized and you were seen as some kind of bum a leech on society that couldn't control their willpower mm-hmm. you know um, oh yeah you were just a piece of shit human being they didn't have anything they had nothing for you or yeah. they just gave you a lobotomy and they were like, okay, yep, that did it. Snip that little piece and you're good. And 12-step programs have become so successful that they're in all areas of, of your life. Like you could go to oh, yeah. a 12-step program for pretty much anything now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really just this idea of maybe, being around Maybe people. hit up Gamers Anonymous, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> Gamers Anonymous. Uh, oh, my. There's, there's some crazy ones out there. Mm-hmm. Um, Debtors Anonymous, you know. We, uh, we've had a debtor on the show. Have you? Oh, yeah. I bet he had some interest. He or she had some interest. Yeah, he was very interesting. Oh, I'm sure. There's another ism in my brain right now. You put down the spoon, you pick up the fork. You put down the fork, you pick up the credit card, right? Ooh, like, um, I hadn't heard that one. I could become a debtor next year. I better be careful. Yeah, yeah. Um, Where was I? I'm not even sure. Biggest accomplishment. Biggest accomplishment. 12 steps. 12 steps, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and getting a college degree is not far after that. You know, I just had a daughter and I'm not finished my bachelor's yet. Mm -hmm. And it would be really easy for me to stop right now. Yeah, you have an excuse now. I have an excuse and I thought about it. Of course. And I thought about taking a semester off and I thought about, I don't have time. Mm -hmm. It's too much. Um, But ultimately... I trusted my gut, my yeah. higher power, and I just decided to keep going because I'm mm-hmm. close. Yep. You know, so, um, hey, if I'm 45 or 50 years old or whatever it is, it, it'll feel like an accomplishment. Awesome. All right. Well, that's about all we have, but I'm going to give you one minute to talk to anybody out there listening who's struggling and needs to hear Master Pope. What do you have to say to them? Um, <clears throat> what I'll say is that... Um, no matter what your circumstances are, right? Like if you're, if you're living in a bando shooting puddle water, or if you just smoke too much pot, um, you know, it's this program and this way of life, it's never too late to turn it all around. Um, you know, I feel like the concept of self-help groups is that we all just share this common problem. I looked at it when I was younger as these people are a cult and it's, it's, they don't know how to use successfully, but really all we are is just people. Yep. We're people that share the same issue that lean on each other, yep. right? We happen to have a structure and these meetings and all that stuff, but the meat of it is in the fact that we can go to each other and we have tools to get through life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And we accept all shapes, sizes, and colors, right? From Park Avenue to Park Bench, right? I call nice. it the equal opportunity destroyer, right? The disease doesn't play mm, favorites. Wow. So, you know, <clears throat> No matter what you're going through, um, it's never too late. And if I was to give you any suggestions, uh, it would be to, um, you know, go to meetings, um, you know, get a sponsor, um, surround yourself with people that are like-minded, that are in recovery, um, change the places you go and, and, you know, the sky's the limit, right? Like I encourage anyone to, to give it a shot and, um, it's made my life. Uh, livable and and um, amazing when there was a time that I thought I would be dead by now. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest, Zach, for joining us today. <laughs> and uh, here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. 
We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and podcast recovery is here to provide. All right, Eric, will you uh, let our listeners know how they can become part of podcast recovery? No, you're not mic'd? Oh, well, never mind. You're useless. Um, uh, please come join our home group. Please become part of our uh, Patreon. What? Oh, go ahead. Continue. Okay. Become part of our Patreon. Help us keep the mics on. Uh, it, it, it's always very beneficial. Uh, go to our Facebook, our Twitter, our Instagram. Like, share, subscribe. Um, think that's it if you'd like to become a guest please feel free to dm us and we will will schedule a time for you to get you on the air um so yeah thank you for being part of the podcast recovery family but most importantly everybody out there stay safe and stay clean